Welcome back. About 10 years ago, I met a young man named Michael Osaki, who I have found then and continue to find one of the most interesting people I know, because he's in a, a profession about which I know very little, but is a profession that I suppose every young man, certainly growing up in Chicago, toyed with when they were young. I don't know anybody my age, certainly, who didn't at one point collect baseball cards. Uh, and uh, Michael is at the top of the field. If you go into the... You can read about him in Tuesday's Tribune. I'm, I'm updating the life and times of Michael Osaki. But he's also quoted in a fascinating, huge article in Sunday's New York Times with the headline, The Biggest News in Trading Cards Since They Lost the Bubblegum. Do you believe that's true, Michael? And great to see you. Thanks for having me back, Rick. You bet. Yeah, the um, since I met you 10 years ago to where we are today, everything has really changed for the better. Sports card collecting, um, the amount of people that are collecting, the money that's been coming into it from private equity groups. We're now seeing M&A. Um, to be honest, it's really just eye-popping, but I'm just happy to be you know one small part of it. Why is that? What do you attribute this boom in the business to? Some of it must have had to do with the COVID lockdown. Absolutely. We were starting to see some uh, really positive activity pre-COVID. But then once COVID hit, we had a lot of different um, tailwinds. We had the government stimulus and people took those funds and they couldn't travel or dine out or do anything fun. So they just went online and bought baseball cards. And then you had wow. Justin Bieber showing off his Pokemon cards on social media. You had the fall of 2020 at a press conference. LeBron James was asked what he thought about one of his rookie, base, or rookie basketball cards that sold for millions of dollars. And LeBron said, I have a couple myself. And so you have all these different tailwinds. And here we are today. Yes, a lot of the prices have come down from the COVID highs, but we are still, in most cases, above pre-pandemic levels. The, the prices uh, sometimes simply stun me. And I sometimes when I hear of these prices, I say to myself, there are a lot of people with really too much money. Uh, in this New York Times piece, they mention a uh, a... Uh, a Tom Brady rookie card that some anonymous some anonymous uh, collector bought for five hundred thousand dollars, and you told me before the show that that oh well Rick a few years ago that card was worth a million dollars, over a million dollars uh, a couple years ago it was multiple millions of dollars and um, that's just one instance. We've had uh, we had a Patrick Mahomes card a couple years ago sell for four point two million dollars. So we're just seeing, and, and it's not just cards. We're seeing memorabilia. Michael Jordan game used memorabilia, millions of dollars, jerseys, shoes. It's just really been fascinating, and I think a lot of the record prices sometimes have to do with storytelling and also. Um, provenance and if someone wore this or not if you can get a photo match to Michael Jordan wearing this jersey in the playoffs that's really exciting do you think well, how much of it has to do Michael Osaki with nostalgia with the notion that oh my god Tom Brady was my favorite player or so Ernie Banks 
was my favorite player. Is some of it, is that a motivating factor for some collectors? Or are most collectors in it to make money? We see both. But nostalgia is huge. And nostalgia has become an ever-increasing part of a hobby in the last couple of years. With the stay-at-home orders and the work-from-home, you have families now having dinner at the same table together talking about... Oh, oh, Bobby, so when I grew up 30 years ago, I, you know, I, I, I bought this at the Five and Dime store. Let me show it to you. And it's maybe a Mike Schmidt rookie card or something. And all of a sudden, the father and the son or daughter are now going to a local card show and walking around and buying some cards. It's just, been, you know, this is a fun hobby. Wow. And it's, it's more than a hobby to you, though. It is a business. Take me back to... You got in this whole thing, I think, when, if memory serves, you were 11 years old or 10 or something, and you got a present from your grandfather. That's right. That was the 1990s, believe it or not. And I got a a shoebox of old baseball cards for my birthday, and that's how it got started, how I got on the hunt of trying to find more of them. At the time, I would go to local card shows on the weekends, Holiday Inn, Ramada Inn, walk around, ask dealers questions. It was fun. I mean, are those shows, you know, this New York Times piece uh, visited a a big, big, big show, the Chicago Sports Spectacular, which is one of the biggest. But are these sorts of shows going on with a frequency that would surprise me? Almost every weekend. No. So here, um, yeah, so we have Dallas. That's a big show. Um, Outside of Philadelphia, they have some big shows. In Chicago, the big shows are November and March. And then every other year, we have the biggest show in Chicago, which is the National Sports Collectors Collectors Convention. This year, it'll be in Cleveland, but last year, it was in Chicago. And you go to... Not every one of them. You can't possibly go to every one of them, but you go to many of them. And you must see at these things the same the same collectors, the same people, right? It must be a, a, a sort of seriously and relatively finite community. Yes, but it's also growing. Uh, I, I actually set up with a booth at the National Sports Show every year. That's the only show that I go to that I actually have a booth. Um, and what do you have? What do you have in that booth? Really nothing. It's it's really it's really marketing materials. The booth for me is lead generation. I'm not actually selling anything. Right, but you are an authenticator. I mean, how do you how do you describe exactly Michael Osaki in a field that has uh, many people doing many different things? How do you describe what you do? Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, you can go to a very cool website called baseballintheattic.com to see what he does. Describe it to me. Sure. So I am a certified sports appraiser. So usually people will call me in for one of three reasons, insurance, donation, or estate planning purposes. And they need a formal written report for those reasons. Um, So I'll come in. It's usually large collections. And I'll take pictures, I'll assess condition, I'll see, okay, this autograph of Babe Ruth is not real, this Lou Gehrig is real, and then um, I'll go back to my office and then write up the formal report and then deliver it to the client. Uh, how does one get certified to do that? I mean, I can't, you know, I'd love to do it too, but no one's going to take my word for anything. Yeah. 
So a lot of it is repetition, meaning, you know, just like in your job, you've been doing something for so long. I think I read years ago, like the 10,000 hour rule, but I'm part of an organization called ISA, International Society of Appraisers, and they invited me in um, based on some some of my peers that thought what I did was really good when it comes to um, reviewing um, large collections and then writing up a report. And ISA uh, certifies wine appraisers, jewelry, um, dinosaur bones. How often do you see people who have, not, not people who are trying to cheat or scam the business, but people who have made uh, mistakes in what they've collected? I mean, how often is that where someone says, I remember the last time we talked uh, in your apartment, you said something about the people get calls all the time from people saying, hey, I've got the Honus Wagner card, which is proverbially the most expensive uh, baseball card ever. How often do people get, it must be fairly easy to get scammed in this, and that's why you're necessary. Yeah, and the Honus Wagner card is really a good example. So there's only about 50 of them known. I've been fortunate to appraise a couple of them, a couple of real ones. But going back to your question... Um, what's, it like, what's it like to hold that thing? I mean, it's kind of like an out-of-body experience because that is the holy grail of the hobby of sports collectibles. It doesn't matter if you collect or not. Most people know of that card yeah. because they've seen it on the news. They've read about it in the newspaper. They hear about it on the radio. And so everyone knows that card. And so to, to touch and see and a real one that's worth millions of dollars is just jaw-dropping. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Uh, Michael's going to be on all the way until a quarter after six, uh, and I'm glad he came in. I'll read you what he says in this New York Times piece, and we will talk more about what I find his fascinating life. It's not just your life. It's your life and career. We'll be back. Welcome back. Michael Osaki is telling me about the ins and outs of, of collecting and also appraising. Uh, you do collect, too, don't you, Michael? You don't. Your business is appraising mostly, yes? Yes. I do have a collection that started a long time ago. But be- With your grandfather's baseball card. Yeah. Yes. Um, but being an appraiser, there is a conflict of interest from appraising and then buying. Because mm-hmm. I could tell someone... This is worth a thousand bucks, and it's worth a million bucks, and then I buy it for a thousand, and then I flip it. So you can't you can't do that. What do you collect? Nineteen fourteen Cracker Jack cards, nineteen thirty three Gaudi tobacco cards, autographs, vintage autographs like Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth. Mostly baseball, not exclusively baseball, but mostly. Yes. Baseball. Correct. Yeah. So let's talk about this thing. This this New York Times piece talks about the business getting sort of radically, radically changed. There's an outfit called Fanatics. First, tell what, what's Fanatics. Most people know Fanatics clothes. As, as clothes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But now they're getting into online betting and sports collectibles. As of a year and a half ago, they purchased Topps Baseball Card Company. Wow, the legendary Topps Baseball Card Company that was still in business, of course. See, I haven't, you know, when I go to stores or even drugstores, I don't see, 
I don't see baseball cards anymore. Where where would I buy base? I'm not going to start collecting, but where would I find these in hobby shops or? You're going to the wrong stores, Rick. <laughs> yes, uh, hobby <laughs> shops, baseball card shops, also Target, Target and Walmart sell baseball and basketball cards. Do they still come with gum? Uh, some do, most do not. Let me ask you too. This is fascinating to me. Has has artificial intelligence? And the new, uh, incredibly sophisticated uh, ways of reproducing things. Has this screwed up the business in any way? Would it be possible for me, not me, but someone I knew who was a sort of internet genius, to make a Honus Wagner card that could fool a normal person, not you, but fool a, a collector? Uh, um. It depends on how savvy the collector is or not. I, I guess the answer to your question is no. That's not um, where I see the big scamming coming from. A lot of the, you know, we see forgeries, we see reprints that I'm are sold sure, as original, yeah. fake autographs, card trimming. Uh, I'm what, not, is, what is that? Card so, trimming. Card trimming. Let's say you can imagine a baseball card that's two and a half inches by three and a half inches. Well, the condition, especially the corners, are really important as far as the value goes. So if you maybe see a a dent in a corner and then shave it off or uh, do something nefarious, all of a sudden the value goes up because that corner is now perfect because, because you did something to it. Are there people who have been known? I've I've read many books about people who are who fake artwork and who uh, uh, fake other other items. I mean, has that been a, a problem in this business? All the time, we have the FBI that's always walking around the National uh, Sports Collectors Convention. Really? Um, yes, I was. Uh, um, <clears throat> I, I had to opine on something in Michigan the, uh, for a court. Uh, a guy was doing some bad things, and I was quoted in the newspaper. Um, I was helping the, the prosecutor's office there um, every day, all the time. Because, Rick, if you think about it, it doesn't matter what, what your line of work is. If there is money to be made, there's con artists involved. No question. No, no question. You say in this uh, nice piece, they do not have a nice picture of uh, Michael Osaki here. He's holding stuff in front of his face, so you don't really get to see him, but you will in Tuesday's Tribune. Uh, you say here about uh, fanatics, quote, fanatics is going to take over the world. Some people would say maybe that's not a good thing. I think it's a good thing. I think this hobby needs innovation, new ideas. For too long, it's the same old, same old. Give me an idea of what you think would be a good idea and how this, how this you know, it, it seems to me to be a kind of ancient, ancient art collecting world you know old bats old cards old baseballs old jerseys old this what innovations would you like to see yeah first and foremost we need to get younger kids children involved in the hobby because smash their phones (laughs) they're they're the lifeblood you know 20 30 years from now they're going to keep this hobby going strong and so I, I would hope and I think maybe Fanatics uh, recognizes that and maybe they're going to bring in um, some of their athletes to some of the, to a Fanatics show 
and have some experience. A one-on-one, the athlete talks to a 12-year-old kid, and then the kid gets a free pack of cards, something like that. Interesting. Um, I think that's important. But it all revolves around kids, people under the age of 19, 20. They need to be more involved. <clears throat> Why aren't they? Because there's been no inducement to to go to a uh, hobby store and buy baseball cards. Yes, but uh, yes, of course. But they're also uh, into you know online gaming. Um, you know where you see people. You know, there's people on YouTube who make a living. There's there's a 16 year old kid making millions of dollars a year by playing whatever these games, and then people watch him. Wow. Um, this is baseball card collecting is a physical. You know, you have to see it and touch it. You you buy it. Um, in the last 10, 15 years, there's been too much activity on iPhones. And um, I'm hoping that's going to change with the uh, entrance of Fanatics into this market. How does this work, Michael, for, for the average athlete? Not LeBron and not uh, Tom Brady. But for, uh, I'm sure Jason Kelsey's cards are worth much more now that he has a nice girlfriend. Uh, when, obviously, this Fanatics makes deals with athletes, yes, and says, we're going to uh, make a card of you, and we're going to take your picture and put some stats on the back or whatever it is. If you're at that level... Most of them aren't because they do it when they're rookies, right? They sign. How much do players get? I mean, what what is Brady's cut, for instance, if there is a Brady cut from someone who has paid $500,000 for his rookie card? It varies by player, obviously, depending upon how good you are. Um, but traditionally, when a player, it doesn't matter what sport they're in, signs a contract, let's say a football contract, their agent doesn't make a lot of money. We're talking, you know, single digits, low single digits percentage. Mm-hmm. However, their marketing agent can make 20, 30% on a marketing deal, which would be like an autograph deal, or this person shows up at the Foot Locker on, on Michigan Avenue, whatever sure. it is. And so that's can be a good percentage on an athlete's uh, total income. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've met dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of athletes. How do they themselves look at this whole collectible world? Well, a lot of them are grumpy and don't like it, but sometimes mm. they need the money, so they'll they'll take it. Yeah. Um, uh. But then you have like the high end, like the Tom Brady, um, you know, uh, LeBron James, these guys that get paid or who have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank uh, don't really need to or even care, care. To, to to sign an autograph. Yeah. You know, for Tom Brady to get paid two hundred and fifty grand for a couple hours. He doesn't really care. You mean in an autograph show? Yeah. He, he doesn't even care? No. Wow. He'll say no. Wow. Wow. Are there still, I, I remember years ago, there was there were always, there have always been these kind of outliers who would not sign an autograph for anybody. Paul Newman was like that. Paul Newman would not say, not that he was an athlete, but he was a race car driver. Uh, he would not sign autographs. Are there, are there legendarily athletes who have, consistently 
refuse to sign anything. Well, one that kind of comes to mind is, uh, so when the Chicago Cubs won the 2016 World Series, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, uh, Jake Arrieta uh, didn't really want to sign anything team signed. He did sign some, so to find Uh, a 2016 Chicago Cubs team signed World Series baseball with Jake Arrieta, it can be difficult, so it's worth more money. (laughs) Why, was he just a bad guy? I don't know. I'm not really sure what happened, but... Uh, some guys will just don't like to sign. Uh, you know, another example is Sandy Koufax, and he's he's probably about eighty five, eighty six. Yeah. And unfortunately, he lost a lot of money with the Bernie Madoff uh, situation. Oh, he was a Madoff guy uh, fifteen years oh, ago. Wow. Um, but his autographs are, are very, very valuable because he just doesn't sign. Interesting. What about Pete Rose, who I think probably signs like crazy. Way too much, Pete Rose. Yeah, his it's just crazy. Every day he signs more and more autographs, and the value of his autograph goes down every day. Wow. So he's just doing volume to make money. It's kind of, in a a way, uh, Michael Osaki, it's kind of, there's a sadness to some of it. Do you know what I mean? To some of the... uh, to some of the you know guys who go to, I've been to a few card shows in my day when I was writing stories about uh, Mike Ditka and Steve McMichael, and uh, it, it, uh, it it's pretty strange. You see a long line for some people, and then you see no line for other people. It's very weird. I'm going to keep Michael uh, here through the news because I want to ask him a couple more questions about the future of this of this. Uh, interesting subculture uh you can read that piece in the new york times you won't understand because it's a little business and there are lawsuits flying back and forth in this thing or you can read my story in tuesday's uh chicago tribune for a much more cogent and understandable take on what michael does he travels a lot too that's another interesting aspect of his life so please stay tuned we'll be back after the news. Welcome back. I'm keeping uh, Michael Osaki here for a few more minutes. Uh, just because I want to know, he is in a such an interesting business. You can learn much more about him uh, if you read Tuesday's uh, Chicago Tribune. I'm writing about him. But also, he's got a very cool website called BaseballInTheAttic.com. You travel, you, you, as well as appraising uh, various collections and items, uh, you do a lot of traveling and speaking too, Michael. Who do you, what, what sort of groups do you speak to? It depends. It could be a village, a municipality. It could be a corporation. Um, it really kind of runs the gamut, um, and that's fun for me because I'm only one person. I can only see or talk to so many people in a day. Exactly. But um, to talk about what I see, what I do, and the overall market and the trends. Uh, the people who I talk to are really interested and very engaged, and so I'm definitely appreciative of that. How, many, how often do you do that in a, in a regular, normal year, not a COVID year? It, yeah, so speaking engagements have really tailed off since COVID started. Sure. 2020 and 21, there was zero. Yeah. Um, but it's starting to come back a little bit. Uh, 2024, we'll see what happens. That's great. What, what, do you, what do you think? Talk to me. Whatever happens with this fanatics thing. Uh, you obviously, you are bullish on the future of of collecting, aren't you? Super bullish. Very, very exciting um, with fanatics, but 
just other different pieces I'm seeing in the hobby. We're seeing companies being acquired. We're seeing private equity come into the market, which is really, I've never really seen that before. And that's interesting. Doing what? Uh, so private equity is, um, let's say you have a startup or business that needs uh, capital to run or purchase products. Uh, they're helping people out there. Um, and then also, if someone wants to buy out a company for whatever, tens of millions of dollars, most people don't have that in their bank account. True. And so, <laughs> Very true. So private equity will come in um, and help those people um, and then maybe put a person on the board of directors to kind of oversee that. It's really, really fascinating and interesting. Are you great friends with many of your colleagues in the business? I mean, what is that like? Because you would think it's a kind of backbiting scene, but but I have the feeling you're such a nice guy that you probably have a lot of friends in the business, yes? I do, and I try and be nice to everybody. There's obviously some people who I would never do business with in the hobby. Pete Rose. Pete, Pete Rose, yes. Um, but but there's plenty of good people. Like This is a good, fun hobby. Unfortunately, sometimes people will take it too far and, and try and make money in the wrong way. What, what's the wrong way? Give me an example. Well, so we talked a few minutes ago about card trimming, um, right. and that's prevalent in the hobby. But now um, people have been doing a better job of – people know now how to look for a card that's been trimmed. Also, PSA, which is the world's leading a third-party grader and authenticator – uh, so I'm also the head appraiser at PSA. They mm. ha- they have technology that can detect if a card has been trimmed or not. Wow. And what about artificial intelligence and all this new nonsense? I mean, are you worried about any of that? Not quite yet. It's definitely something on my radar for sure. But mm-hmm. it's you know it's fairly new in the last year or two. Um, I don't know you know how, how that's going to affect the hobby or kind of what I do. I think for me personally. The way that I operate and do my job, I think I'm uh, very insulated. I don't think AI can take over my job. But um, some other parts of the uh, hobby, potentially. What's one of, without telling people where you live so they don't go try to steal from you, what's, what's your favorite thing collectible that you own? Is there... Yeah. Such a, is it, what is it? Absolutely. And it's definitely not the most valuable, but it is my favorite. So we talked earlier about how I got started um, back in the 1990s. Yeah. yeah, getting a shoebox. So I still have some of the cards from that shoebox. And one of them was a 1973 Tops Mike Schmidt rookie card. It's not in very good condition. Uh, Mike who? Mike Schmidt. Oh, Mike Schmidt, sure. So the condition is not good. So the value might be in a retail setting, 50, 60 bucks. But to me, that's my favorite because that's how I got started in the hobby. It connects you to your grandfather. How unbelievably interesting.